Well, when we talk about C.T. Studd, one of, the, one of the things C.T. Studd is most known for is a poem that he wrote that is actually eight stanzas long, and I will just read the first and the eighth at this point, and as I do, I think probably these words will resound as familiar to you. The poem is entitled, Only One Life Twill Soon Be Passed. The first stanza says this, two little lines I heard one day, traveling along life's busy way, bringing conviction to my heart and from my mind would not depart. Only one life twill soon be passed, only what's done for Christ will last. And then the eighth stanza, the final one, only one life, yes, only one, now let me say, thy will be done. And when at last I'll hear the call, I know I'll say, "'Twas worth it all. Only one life twill soon be passed. Only what's done for Christ will last." That is, uh, some, those are some words that uh, C.T. Studd is best known for, and of course there's some other very famous quotations that we'll take a moment from time to time throughout this presentation to look at. But there are a lot of things in C.T. Studd's life that aren't known and aren't familiar to many who have come to respect the man who penned these words. Well, just to help us as we embark on a, a survey of his life, and there's a lot of material and it's very uh, difficult to, to get through in the time that we have allotted. In fact, uh, in, in many regards, what you find with C.T. Studd's life is that as Amazing as his beginning is, it only ramps up in intensity as he gets older, and so it's, it's difficult to get through it all because as he gets into his latter years in Africa, uh, some phenomenal things uh, uh, result from his efforts. But let me give you a survey at this point just so that you can kind of uh, put it in perspective uh, where, uh, where, where his life fits into history. He was born in 1860. He was converted at the age of 16, 15 uh, in 1876. Uh, he, uh, by, the, by the year 1883-1884, by the time he was 23, he had become the premier cricketer of England he arrived in China in 1885 at the age of around 25 and served in China for nine years. During that time, he gave away all of his inheritance. He also got married to his wife, Priscilla, and that will be his only wife throughout the rest of his life. He, in 1894, returns uh, to England due to very poor health. He had had a bout with typhoid fever and therefore suffered from asthma for the rest of his life, sometimes had some severe attacks. Uh, in 1896 to 1897, he spent time in the United States touring uh, universities here and being involved in the student volunteer movement. In 1900... He arrived in India and served six years as a pastor of an English-speaking church in South India. In 1908, he arrived in Africa, where he will 
then dedicate the rest of the 23 years that the Lord had given him to ministry there from 1908 to 1931. He makes trips back to England during that time, but uh, those final 23 years of his life are spent uh, dedicated to the ministry in Africa. As part of that, he founds a ministry called Heart of Africa Mission, and the focus of that ministry is on Belgian Congo, or what we now call the Democratic Republic of Congo. In 1919, a few years after arriving in Congo, he renames his ministry the Worldwide Evangelization Crusade. Perhaps you're familiar with that title, that organization. In the final years of his life, we'll, we'll talk about this, there are, they are years of controversy, very difficult times. It's very difficult, really, to read of what happened during that time. And then in 1931... Uh, Two years after his wife had passed away, he dies July 16th in the Congo. So as you look at C.T. Studd's life, his impact involved four continents, beginning first of all in Europe, in his country of England, extending then to to, uh, China, to Asia, and then uh, had considerable influence among students in American universities in North America, and then of course, spent time in India as well as Africa. He was a man of phenomenal influence, and the Lord took him literally all over the world. So let's begin and and look at how the Lord did that, how the Lord worked in and through him. He was born December 2nd, 1860, and his birth town was Spratton, Northamptonshire, England, which actually was the same... Uh, region where William Carey had been born 101 years earlier. Uh, William Carey uh, was uh, born 23 miles to the south of where C.T. Studd was born. Uh, His parents' names were Edward and Dora, and he is uh, also a brother to two other very famous individuals, John Edward Keniston and George Brown, and and they would all go by their initials, J-E-K and J-B, and Charles Thomas would go by C-T. Let me talk a little bit about his upbringing. His dad, Edward Studd, had made a fortune, a large fortune, in India uh, processing indigo. And so uh, when Edward returned to England, a very wealthy man, he took lease of the Tedworth house where C.T. and his brothers would spend their childhood, a very large mansion, very large property, very beautiful, beautiful place still around today. Well, when Edward returned, he brought back his love for hunting that he developed in India, and he was an avid huntsman, he enjoyed cards, Uh, He loved the theater, and he especially loved horse racing and cricket. So he loved loved all the the high-end cultural activities that uh, British life could afford. In fact, he even built his own racetrack on the Tedworth property, and he trained horses and raced them. In fact, several of his horses even placed at the top or close to the top in various national races. Well, his life then changed in 1875. 
1875, a friend invited Edward to attend an evangelistic meeting at the Drury Lane Theater in London. And the featured speaker was Dwight L. Moody. Ira Sankey was the accompanying musician. Now, Edward was no religious man. He was Church of England by background, but he was not into this piety stuff. So really the only reason why he was interested in attending this evangelistic function was that he had heard of all the criticism in the press uh, that had been made against Moody and Sankey and thought, well, if the press hates them so much, this will be an interesting spectacle to observe. Well, from the first moment of Moody's preaching, Edward was captivated by his message and believed that Moody was just preaching at him. Uh, Edward continued to attend the evening crusades until a few evenings later he was very soundly converted. Edward stunned his family and friends by returning home and selling his racehorses and giving up racing altogether. He even removed some of the furniture from the mansion, some of the very fine furniture, to make room for benches so that he could hold special prayer meetings on the weekends in that home. That home then became a place of hosting various speakers and missionaries who would then have an impact on his own sons. Edward now possessed or professed one ambition. He was very much dedicated to the salvation of souls. That was what moved him. Later, an acquaintance remarked to a friend of Edward that Mr. Studd had become religious or something, and this friend said, well, sir, we don't know much about that, but I can say, what I can say is that though there's the same skin, there's a new man inside. Certainly, Edward evidenced all the signs of repentance and, and a new life. Well, Edward's concern had turned to his sons, whom he began to pray for. They had already, by this time, they had been sent to Eton College, a boarding school for boys. That's how a lot of the education was done. Boys were sent away to these private schools, and, and by that time, the boys were out of the home, except on summer vacations. And so the boys were attending this very prestigious boarding school, and and uh, all three of them had inherited their father's love for high culture and for sport. And so all three were members of the Eaton Eleven. Now, if you know anything about cricket, and I don't, and I thought for a moment that I would try to explain cricket, uh, but I don't understand it. I watched some YouTube videos about what cricket is, and, and I needed dictionaries and all kinds of stuff. I don't understand it. I will stick to uh, the Canadian refined sports of hockey and curling. <laughs> well, Edward invited his sons, who were infatuated and absorbed by this high culture and prestige and, and, and involvement in, in uh, cricket and things of that nature. He invited his sons to join him at a special meeting. His sons didn't really know what this meeting was, but they went at their father's request, and they were surprised when it turned out that the meeting that, uh, his, that their father had invited them to was not a theatrical performance, but was an evening of what they called God Talk, led by D.L. Moody. 
and they were shocked at what they heard. Later on, C.T. would write these words uh, about that time in his life. He said, before that time, I used to think that religion was a Sunday thing, like one's Sunday clothes, to be put away on Monday morning. We boys were brought up to go to church regularly, that's the Church of England, Uh, but although we had a kind of religion, it didn't amount to much. It was just like having a toothache. We were always sorry to have Sunday come and glad when it was Monday morning. The Sabbath was the dullest day of the whole week, and just because we had gotten hold of the wrong end of religion. Then all at once, I had the good fortune to meet a real, live, play-by-the-game Christian. It was my own father. But it did make one's hair stand on end. Everyone in the house had a dog's life of it until they were converted. I was not altogether pleased with him. He used to come into my room at night and ask if I was converted. After a time, I used to sham sleep when I saw the door open. And in the day, I crept around the other side of the house when I saw him coming. C.T. wasn't immediately converted around that time when he heard that first crusade by D.L. Moody. It took about a year. His dad prayed for him and his brothers the entire time. None of them for that year were converted until one Sunday afternoon. As I said, uh, Edward had used his home to host various speakers uh, and missionaries, and a certain Mr. Weatherby was, uh, was in the home, hosted by the father. The boys were home on summer vacation, and they thought this Mr. Weatherby was really a strange oddity. And they had devised some pranks that they were going to pull on Mr. Weatherby, but Mr. Weatherby had the upper hand. And Mr. Weatherby went to each one of the sons and started individual conversations with him, and he did this with C.T. as well. And he managed to get C.T. in in the garden, and he asked him a question, uh, Are you a Christian? To which C.T. replied, I am not what you call a Christian. I have believed on Jesus Christ since I was knee-high. Of course, I believe in the church too. Mr. Weatherby replied, look here, God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son, that whosoever believeth on him should not perish, but have everlasting life. Do you believe that Jesus Christ died? C.T. responded, yes. Do you believe in the other half of the verse, that those who believe on him shall have everlasting life? C.T. responded, no. I don't believe that. At that moment, conviction flooded his soul, and Mr. Weatherby was able to talk with him more. And C.T. would later write, And right then and there, joy and peace came into my soul. I knew then what it was to be born again. And the Bible, which had been so dry to me before, became everything. Well, unknown to all three of the boys... Until some time later, all three of them had been individually converted that Sunday afternoon due to the ministry of Mr. Weatherby. They only found out after each of them had individually told their father and they received 
a letter back to addressed to all of them back at Eaton, expressing the father's joy, and they rejoiced in hearing of each other's conversions. The next stop for the Stud Boys was Cambridge University. And being the great cricketers that they were, each of them in their own, uh, in, in succession, became captains of the very elite Cambridge Cricket 11. Uh, the, this team was the elite team in the world, uh, second perhaps only to the Australians, uh, whom Cambridge was able to beat uh, once or twice because of uh, the, the stud boys. All three stud sons were remarkable cricketers, but out of the three, C.T. Sean brightest. By 21 years of age, C.T. was all, already nationally and even internationally acclaimed. One newspaper uh, wrote this, Though only a third-year man at the university, He rose to the very top of the cricket world, amateur and professional alike. It is doubtful whether any other undergraduate in the history of cricket has done such a thing. C.T. quickly became the idol of young men across the nation. You see, cricket was really the symbol of the highest culture in in England. It was the symbol of the, the best that England would produce. It was the consummate gentleman's sport, and so CT was at the top of the world. Another source wrote this about his Cambridge career. They called it one long blaze of cricketing glory, one of the greatest all-round players that the game has ever produced. And it's important to realize just how important this is. Again, we don't understand cricket, so for us, you know, if we don't know the context, cricketing sounds like something insects do. But in the Commonwealth, and especially in in uh, England, uh, cricketing, like I said, was was revered as as an idol. In fact, C.T. Studd explained it this way. He said, "If everything else in this nation of ours were lost, but cricket." Our constitution and the laws of England, of, of Lord Halsbury, it would be possible to reconstruct from the theory and practice of cricket all the eternal Englishness which has gone to the establishment of that constitution and the laws aforesaid. So, whatever you can parallel that to today here in North American and American sports. CT was, was at the height of it all. But though all three sons were remarkable in their cricketing, not all were remarkable in their witness at Cambridge during these years. Keniston was the strongest. He organized Bible studies as a result of his conversion, and George was close behind. But for CT, cricket had become an idol with which he struggled. Later on, when he was in Africa, he wrote back to his brother Keniston, and um, he wrote words of of uh, these words that expressed his appreciation for his brother's witness during that time. He said, "I never forget the influence your life had upon me, 
and how I admired your courage and loyalty to the Lord Jesus Christ, which earned for you that greatest of all compliments. For you remember our cricketing friends used to call you the austere man because your life was true to God and you were true to them. For you were ever faithful in speaking to them about their souls. Instead of going and telling others of the love of Christ, I was selfish and kept that knowledge to myself. The result was that gradually my love became cold and the love of the world began to come in. I spent six years in that unhappy, backslidden state. That all changed in 1883. Uh, at that time, when, when uh, C.T. was 23 years old, his, younger, his other brother, George, had contracted an illness, and many thought that George would die. C.T. had the strongest relationship with George, and so he rushed to George's side. And as he conversed with George and, and George's uh, priorities, as George reflected on his life, he then wrote to himself these words, C.T. did. He said, now what is all the popularity in the world worth to George? What is all the fame and flattery worth? What is it worth to possess all the riches in the world when a man comes to face eternity? All these things had become as nothing to my brother. He only cared about the Bible and the Lord Jesus Christ. And God taught me the same lesson. That was in, in the latter part of 1883 as, as God really worked in C.T.'s life at that time. And in the early days of January 1884, so just a few weeks later, C.T. Studd would write, God brought me back. He said, formerly I had so much love, as much love for cricket as any man could have. When the Lord Jesus Christ came into my heart, I found that I had something infinitely better than cricket. My heart was no longer in the game. I wanted to win souls for the Lord. I knew that cricket would not last, but it was worthwhile living for the world to come. The zeal and determination that made him the nation's best cricketer was now directed towards evangelism. Moody was back in London at that time, and C.T. immediately began inviting his friends, including some of the, the members on the cricket team, to Moody's crusades. Several of those teammates who attended were converted as a result. But it was during this time also that C.T. became very troubled over his future, over what to do after Cambridge. Even to the point of illness, he became so concerned and, and, and had no answers for what to do with his life that he began to struggle with bouts of, of serious illness. Now, before I, I go on at this point, I, I do want to mention a, a weakness that we can see evidence itself in, in uh, C.T.'s life at this time. He very much was influenced 
by the theology that was very prevalent in the, the, the evangelical world at that time, particularly because of the influence of Dwight Moody. And though Moody preached a, a biblical message of salvation by grace alone and faith alone in Christ alone, he had unsound views of the Christian life. And so Moody had this idea, and this first point is right. He, he firmly believed that the Holy Spirit was given as a seal to all believers upon conversion. And, and Moody preached that. The problem wasn't there. But the problem came in when Moody taught that the believer needed something more after conversion if he was to be fruitful in Christian life and ministry. That something more was the Holy Spirit, at least the Holy Spirit's special working. And that something more would come upon the believer in a new way to empower the believer to service if the believer, after having come to faith in Christ, would subsequently surrender himself to the Lord wholly. This was known as, to Moody as the extraordinary blessing that would come upon a believer's life as he dedicated or rededicated his life to God. Now, if you read C.T. Studd's biography by, by uh, Norman Grubb, his son-in-law, you find that this kind of thinking is now going to pervade C.T. Studd uh, and, his, and his life for the rest of his life, especially early on as he makes all kinds of decisions and seeks to determine the Lord's will for his life. But as... as as C.T. was struggling with illness, wondering what to do with his life, and struggling over the fact that he seemed to have no special direction and guidance from the Lord with what to do, uh, this teaching of Moody and Moody's doctrine of, of um, second blessing or extraordinary blessing and rededication and surrender to God really factored into what happened next. And C.T. wrote this, I was very much in earnest about it. That is, to receive this second blessing from God that would solve his dilemma of what to do with his life. So when I went up to my room, I again asked God to give me this peace and joy. I found that the reason I had not received it was just this, that I had not made room for it. And I found, as I sat there alone thinking, that I had been keeping back from God what belonged to him. I found that I had, been brought, I had been bought with the price of the precious blood of the Lord Jesus, and that I had kept back myself from him and had not wholly yielded. As, as soon as I found this out, I went down on my knees and gave myself up to God. Now, we would undoubtedly say that in a believer's life, there is a process of sanctification whereby the believer recognizes more and more the, the sins that remain and, and those idols that still have not been fully mortified in life. And that's what was going on in C.T.'s life. There's no doubt about that. Uh, but we don't need the kind of theology of D.L. Moody to say that the reason for uh, this is, is that the believer, who, the, the believer who struggles, the reason for this is that he hasn't yet received that extra ministry of the Holy Spirit that comes through full and complete surrender. It comes through growth, through the means of grace uh, that are applied through practicing the disciplines 
of, of Scripture. Well, in C.T.'s life, with this renewed confidence, this was a significant moment in his life, and he then determined that what the Lord had for him was missionary service. He felt that the Lord was calling him away from England. One of C.T.'s good friends, Stanley P. Smith, had already been accepted into Hudson Taylor's ministry, CIM, China Inland Mission. And C.T., due to uh, what he heard from his friend, determined that he would go with Smith as a team member uh, to China. He said, I prayed to God to guide me by his word. I felt that there was one thing alone which would keep me from going, and that was the love of my mother. By the way, his father uh, had passed away by this time already. In fact, the his father passed away a few months after C.T.'s and the other brother's conversion. And interestingly enough, his dad, Edward, passed away because he was trying to get someone to a moody crusade, forgot something, ran back and suffered a broken blood vessel in the leg, which later on caused his death. So he just has his mother by this time. And so he says, that there was one thing alone that would keep me from going, and that was the love of my mother. But I read that passage, he that loveth father or mother more than me is not worthy of me, after which I knew it was God's will, and I decided to go. Now his family was strongly opposed, and especially his mother, Dora. One of his relatives wrote to Charlie, to C.T., and said, Charlie, I think you are making a great mistake. You are away every night at the meetings, and you do not see your mother. I see her, and this is just breaking her heart. I think you were wrong. Many others joined in and tried to convince C.T. that he would have a great ministry in England, especially based on his notoriety in the country, but C.T. would have nothing of it. He responded, I knew it was God's voice speaking to me and that I had received my marching orders to go to China. Well, within a few weeks, five other young men, based on the, the uh, example of Smith and Studd, five other young men stepped forward, five other young men of high social standing, And they prepared together to leave for China to serve with China Inland Mission under the direction of Hudson Taylor. These seven came to be known as the Cambridge Seven. And there's a picture of them there. I won't go through all of their names, but they were men of prestige. For example, Stanley P. Smith was the leader of the, the, or the team captain of Cambridge's rowing team, another very revered sport there in England. Others came from very prestigious military backgrounds and already were officers in the military. One was an ordained Church of England pastor already. So this was a very high, uh, highly acclaimed powerhouse of, of men. Their example of sacrifice shocked the nation and became instrumental in starting a new movement among Christian students to, to sacrifice the things of privilege 
that especially was there in England at the time, which was you know the the best most enviable country in the world to sacrifice these things and to go into difficult parts of the world with the gospel. One writer said this, never before probably in the history of missions has so unique a band set out to labor in the foreign field. It was a sight to stir the blood and a striking testimony to the power of the uplifted Christ to draw to himself not just the weak, the emotional, and the illiterate, but all that is noblest in strength and finest in culture. Just as a side note, if, if you're interested in, interested in reading of the history of the Cambridge Seven and their involvement in the, the mission work in China, there's a good little book on it by John Pollock entitled The Cambridge Seven, The True Story of Ordinary Men used in no ordinary way. This, this as well cannot be minimized. This was very significant and made it into the newspapers of the day. These seven men who were born with, with golden spoons in their mouths were about to forsake it all and go to China. The seven set sail for China in February of 1885, When they arrived on March the 18th, 1885, they immediately began to integrate with the Chinese, the clothing, haircuts, and all. That was Hudson Taylor's principle, that if you were going to bring the gospel to a new culture, you had to assimilate. And uh, so within days, uh, they wrote back to uh, to their family and said, you would not recognize us any longer. The problem was that CT had exceedingly large feet, and he could not find any Chinese footwear that would fit. They had to make special things for, uh, special shoes for him, sandals for him uh, to wear. Uh, now, understandably, when they arrived, this is just an interesting little bit of history, when the seven arrived, they were irked by the difficulty of the language. And I see Rodney over there, and I won't ask him if this happened. But when... They began to consider how difficult it was to study the language, learn the language, a principle that, that Hudson Taylor insisted on, that they could not minister through translators. They began to pray for the miracle of tongues. Hudson Taylor, however, was not at all impressed, and he wrote, How many and subtle are the devices of Satan to keep the Chinese ignorant of the gospel. The seven quickly resumed language study. Now, in these early months, we soon find that everything that C.T. had invested in his previous career as a cricketer, he then, he then poured into his work as a missionary. C.T.'s dedication and determination enabled him to thrive in difficult conditions. You read in some of his uh, letters some uh, uh, very... Uh, difficult circumstances, having to travel into into the middle of China and how he would walk 30 miles a day with his feet blistered uh, and then get only a couple hours sleep at night and how through it all, it's remarkable. Uh, He has a, a, a very interesting sense of humor. He would write about it in humorous ways and never complain. C.T. reveled in discomfort 
and considered that the experience of pain in his life and the experience of want was the appropriate response in light of his life, his earlier life of luxury. Now, he didn't become a monastic uh, monk and, and, and pursue that, not, not at all, but he did believe that he had already received in his early years the, the best that the world could afford. Therefore, to suffer pain and to be in want is nothing to complain about. It takes us back to Paul, I think, in Philippians 3, I have learned this, or Philippians 4, I've learned the secret of contentment, to be in times of much and in times of want. In fact, he preferred to sleep on planks. And if given the choice between sitting on a backless bench and a chair, for the sake of his own well-being and a reminder to himself, he would always choose to sit on the backless bench. Now, we all have seats here and pews. It is difficult to sit for extended periods of time on a backless bench. He would choose it over a chair any time. Now, one of the things that C.T. Studd is well known for is it has to do with his inheritance. And I want to put this in perspective. On his 25th birthday, which was in December 1885, C.T. was granted complete control over his share of his father's fortune. So it had been held in a trust after his father's death. It had been held in a trust, and when he turned 25, it was all his to use whichever way he wanted. It amounted to 29 thousand British sterling pounds. Well, C.T. had left for China at the age of 24, legally not 25 yet, but before he left, he had decided that when he would come into possession of the inheritance, he would give it all away. He had been impacted by the account of the rich young ruler in Luke chapter 18. Now that he was in China and now that he was 25, he had to make his final decision. And he kept with his original plan. He would give it all away. It took him quite a time trying to find uh, someone who would sign the power of attorney papers there in China because no one agreed with what he was doing. Now, let me put this in perspective. We look at the inflation rate from 1885 to 2018. Put it in terms of today's money and spending power. According to the Office for National Statistics in the UK, the, the, the sterling pound is an experience, has experienced an average inflation rate of 3.7% each year. In other words, 29,000 pounds in 1885 is equivalent in purchasing power to 3,619,305 pounds today. Now, that is an astounding amount of money. 29,000 pounds in that day is equal to over 3.5 million pounds today. And if you convert that into U.S. dollars, he had inherited almost $5 million. And he was determined to give it all away. Who were the recipients? 5,000 pounds went to D.L. Moody, who used it to begin... Moody Bible Institute. Another 5,000 went to George Mueller for outreach and for orphan ministry. Uh, The other amounts went to various figures who were involved in especially ministering to the poor because uh, 
C.T. recognized that his father had made wealth uh, in a poor country, and so C.T. recognized his responsibility to use some of that, and a lot of that, to minister to the poor to the best that he could. Five other ministries received 1,000 pounds each. He kept the remaining amount, for approximately 4,000 pounds, that he was going to give to his wife when he would marry her, whoever and whenever that would be. But interestingly enough, when he did wed his, uh, his wife, Priscilla Stewart, she said to him, Charlie, what did the Lord tell the rich young man to do? Sell all. Well then, we will start clear at our wedding. And so they together sent the remaining amount to the Salvation Army. C.T. met Priscilla Stewart in 1887 in China. She was the daughter of an Irish merchant. She had previously served with the Salvation Army and had moved to China to join CIM uh, as well. Their paths crossed in Shanghai, and Priscilla, or as she was known, Scylla, he he thought that was funny. He thought, why not call her Pris? But uh, Scylla seemed probably better. Uh, Scylla captured his heart, and she was enamored by the intensity of C.T.'s commitment to ministry and his dedication to sacrifice and service. Nonetheless, she initially refused his proposal to marriage for various reasons, but he persisted. In fact, he wrote her uh, this letter in July 25, 1887. Uh, She he said, "I do believe the Lord has shown me." that your determination is wrong and will not stand, and that you yourself will see this presently if the Lord has not already shown it to you. So he claimed revelation. Who can stand against that? The Lord told me. He continued and said, it will be no easy life. Now this is interesting. As he's convincing her that he's the man for her, he at the same time, right from the beginning, doesn't mince words, and he says this, it will not be an easy life. No life of ease which I could offer you, but one of toil and hardship. In fact, if I do not know you to be a woman of God, I would not dream of asking you. It is to be a fellow soldier in his army. It is to live a life of faith in God, a fighting life, remembering that here we have no abiding city, no certain dwelling place, but only a home eternal in the Father's house above. Such would be the life. May the Lord alone guide you. Again, a few months later, he says, O Scylla, in China it is a life and death struggle. If we don't really die daily, our souls will, and we shall have to be shelved. Let us rather go home broken down in health than broken down spiritually. Those were you could call, in a sense, prophetic words. Charlie and Priscilla were married in 1888, and they immediately, after the wedding, moved to a city in central China where the threat of death, simply for being a foreigner, but especially for being a missionary, was great. Priscilla would later write, she said, For five years we never went outside our doors without a volley of curses from our neighbors. Gradually, we got on familiar terms with the people by allowing them to inspect our apartments, examine everything, and pry into all our belongings at their own sweet will. Everything bad that happened in the city, the Chinese blamed on us. 
Nonetheless, for the next six years, they were determined to make the gospel of Jesus Christ known in that region. Four, their four daughters were born to them there in China. Grace, Dorothy, Edith, Pauline, and Priscilla delivered them on her own. There were no doctors to help. A fifth baby died. I was not able to determine whether that was born, stillborn or born after birth, but, or, or died after birth. But uh, she struggled with it for a few days, but determined that the Lord had put that into her life for a purpose. And she said after that point, she, she was all better. In early 1893, nine years after having arrived in China and five years after marriage, CT, CT's health deteriorated significantly. He had believed that they should never retreat back home to England unless the Lord made that clear, and it was becoming increasingly clear that his debilitating health was that unmistakable providence. In 1894, they left China with their four daughters. The youngest, Pauline, was still just an infant at the time. CT's health was so bad that Many thought he would die on the boat on the way back to England. But they arrived, and back in England, CT's health improved, though again, he will struggle with asthma for the rest of his life. But interestingly enough, it was Priscilla's health now that would falter, and she would now have a life, even there in England, of increasing difficulties with respect to her health, and she will eventually become an invalid Therefore, a return to China seemed less and less likely. After being in England for about a year and a half, CT was invited on a tour to speak in U.S. universities. We won't talk much about this, but the purpose was to promote the Student Volunteer Missionary Union, which later became the Student Christian Movement, and to encourage young students to become missionaries in foreign lands. That was right at the beginning uh, you know, in the 1900s, very significant movement in missions. Uh, some of it good, some of it not good. Some of it led to the amateurization of missions, where education and training and preparation was was very much downplayed, and you just needed to go, just get out there, just get involved in in the mission work. But he was used significantly in in the lives of hundreds of 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 students and brought not only the gospel to them but also reminded them of the great commission. When he returned back to England in 1898, CT was burdened again about his future. Uh, he had always had a special concern for the people of India where his father had made his fortune. And so in 1900, CT decided to move his family to South India where he then pastored an English-speaking church for 6 years until 19 19- These were relatively calm years. In fact, his daughters would later write that these were the ideal years. All four of his daughters became Christians during this time and were baptized there. And and, uh, Amy Carmichael happened to be one of the people who witnessed that baptismal service. But again, CT's health deteriorated due to his asthma At that time already, he would often sleep only two hours a night because he could not lie down. He had to sit up in order to struggle for breath, which was particularly difficult in the nighttime. The girls were also getting to the age where they needed to return to Europe for their education, and so the decision was made for them 
all to leave India for good and return to England. But C.T. would not find contentment in ministry in England. And he was in the same spot that he had been six years earlier and, and ten years before that. What do I do with my life? Interestingly enough, he was walking around in Liverpool in 1908 when he came across a notice that aroused both his humor and his curiosity. The notice said this, cannibals want missionaries. And he thought, yes, indeed, they want missionaries. But he knew what the point was, probably not the best way to promote a ministry, but a German missionary was going to have a presentation on the needs in Africa. And so he immediately decided to go to that meeting, and he was deeply moved by the needs there in Central Africa, uh, the, the, the thousands upon thousands of people who had never heard the name Christ Jesus. But by this time, he was 50 years old. His health was poor, to say the least. He went to the doctors, and they forbid him to go because the heart of Africa is equatorial. It's hot and humid, and there's no health care. Even his wife pleaded with him to reconsider. The mission agency or society sponsoring that effort, of which the German missionary was a part, even refused to approve of CT's involvement because of these issues. Nonetheless... A little bit uh, later on, a a year or two later, he had found enough money to purchase a ticket and and sail to Africa, really under his own cognizance. Originally, CT investigated the possibility of mission work in the southern region of Sudan. Of course, the map of Africa, the borders, and the names of the countries look very different today than they did back in 1910, so you have to keep that in mind. But uh, southern Sudan is essentially where Sudan is today. Uh, And he initially looked at missionary work there, but the agency that that was there, that was involved, uh, didn't meet his standards, and so he realized that that was not the place where he could best serve. Instead, he had heard of an even greater, more difficult region where no one had penetrated, and that was in the area of the Belgian Congo, the very heart of Africa. After 18 months in traveling and investigating, uh, CT returned alive, but uh, on fire more than ever before for the new mission in Africa. He initially teamed up with an American organization called African Inland Mission in order to help find support, though he would later leave AIM to start his own organization. And this kind of indicates a little bit of the spirit that was in C.T. Studd. He really could not get along with leadership above him. In fact, even when he was in China, he was never accepted as a full member of the China Inland Mission because of some of his character issues. He just... He, he couldn't take orders from other people very well, couldn't get along very well with structure, with, with that bureaucracy element in these organizations. So he started his own organization called Heart of Africa Mission, and it was later renamed Worldwide 
evangelization crusade. While he was back in England, C.T. visited universities looking for volunteers who would come with him to Africa, and he began writing various booklets in an attempt to stir up interest in missions among young people and get them looking towards Africa. But as he described missionary work to the students, he did not sugarcoat the, the work at hand. And one of his writings, he says this, the romance of a missionary is often made up of monotony and drudgery. There often is no glamour in it. It doesn't stir a man's spirit or blood. So don't come out to be a missionary as an experiment. It is useless and dangerous. Only come if you feel you would rather die than not come. Don't come if you want to make a great name or want to live long. Come if you feel there is no greater honor after living for Christ than to die for him. And again, this is is especially now during these final 18 years of, of Stud's life. This is Stud's attitude. And in fact, he would have a very difficult time with the missionaries who would come to join him there in Africa, and if anyone could not keep up to him, uh, they would not last long because of his obstinacy and his criticism. But it's important to understand C.T.'s mentality nonetheless. And as I said, he began writing books and, and began trying to stir up young students from their malaise, from their love of the material world. And for Stud, the true Christian was to be looked on as a soldier. And so in one of his more popular works called The Chocolate Soldier, and before you think that that's a good description, if you like chocolate, that is not. That is, that is not a good description. You don't want to be a chocolate so- soldier, and here's why. He, he wrote this, Heroism is the last chord, the missing note of present-day Christianity. Every true soldier is a hero. A soldier without heroism is a chocolate soldier. Who has not been stirred to scorn and mirth at the very thought of a chocolate soldier? In peace, true soldiers are captive lions fretting in their cages. And that's important because that's how C.T. felt whenever he was back in England. He continues, war gives them their liberty and sends them like boys bounding out of school to obtain their heart's desire or perish in the attempt. Battle is the soldier's vital breath. Peace turns him into a swooping or stooping asthmatic. War makes him a whole man again and gives him the heart, strength, and vigor of a hero. Every true Christian is a soldier of Christ, a hero par excellence, braver than the bravest, scorning the soft seductions of peace and her oft-repeated warnings against hardship, disease, danger, and death, whom he counts among his bosom friends. The otherwise Christian is a chocolate Christian, dissolving in water and melting at the smell of fire, Sweeties, they are, bonbons, lollipops, living their lives on a glass dish 
or in a cardboard box, each clad in his soft clothing, a little frilled white paper to preserve his dear little delicate constitution. That was C.T. Studd's warning to the church a hundred years ago. And though C.T. obviously takes this too far, there is a lot of truth in these words. How many young people, knowing that the Great Commission was given by the very mouth of the Lord Jesus Christ, recognizing that there is nothing greater than to serve Christ with one's life, acknowledging the fact that it's eternity that counts, but how many young people will never give up the comforts of their phones, their cars, and living here in what would be the greatest country, the most wealthiest country in the world. C.T. Studd's words are just as much for today. As C.T. began to promote the ministry, there was one man who responded to his call. His name was Alfred Buxton, already known to C.T. because Buxton had just proposed to Edith Alfred's family, the Buxton family, not to mention Edith herself, the the family was livid and pleaded with Alfred not to go with such a harebrained man. Eventually, C.T.'s wife, Priscilla, who was initially contrary to the whole idea, conceded to the plan and blessed her husband's departure. She would actually stay back in England because of her health to hold the rope and to serve as the backbone to the fledgling mission organization. They would only see each other for the next 18 years on rare occasions. And now again, this is an area where we get very uncomfortable with C.T.'s life. He essentially abandoned his wife in her illness, and I'm sure he has had to answer to the Lord for that. Nonetheless, we have to admire the faith and determination of his wife who blessed the departure and committed herself to being CT's greatest supporter and fan back home, especially in the midst of much criticism. In fact, he was indeed confronted by the fact that he was leaving his wife behind and the next statement that I'll read is one that, that we have heard in other contexts from CT, and, and I just want to set the context for when he pronounced these words and let these words sink in. He said this, If Jesus Christ be God and died for me, no sacrifice could be too great for me to make for him. He said that in response to the criticism that many had given that he was abandoning his wife. Now, she certainly didn't say that he was abandoning her. She had already been brought to the point where she felt that this was right for C.T.'s life. And C.T. essentially said, again, we would question the wisdom behind this, that if Jesus Christ says, go, I must be willing to sacrifice everything. In 1913, 
C.T. at the age of 52, and Alfred at the age of 20 arrived in Belgian Congo. As Edith would later say, one was way too old and the other was way too young. Though 52 years of age, C.T. believed that his greatest mission was ahead, and in reality, that was the case. He believed that that his life should mark an ever-increasing level of intensity, and so he said, we do need to be intense, and our intensity throughout life must increase. So contrary to the idea that you reach a certain plateau or a certain time in life and then coast to the finish line, C.T. said, no, you never stop until the Lord takes you home. Their journey took them into the heart of Africa through Kenya and Uganda uh, to the region of Niangara in Congo. And so that literally is in the heart of Africa. If you look at it, you can't get much deeper. The trek took C.T. and Alfred nine months and was fraught with danger. There was, of course, the treacherous terrain, hot and humid climate, wild animals, especially he talked about the crocodiles who would make their noises at night, the insects, snakes, the flies, the mosquito-borne diseases, and, of course, lack of food, most of all, the cannibals who indeed wanted missionaries. (laughs) But he managed to avoid it, and he survived, uh, and uh, Alfred survived, obviously, and they arrived nine months later. And again... As you read his letters, you find this, this, this sense of humor as he described his conditions. For example, one little snippet about the fever, about malaria. He said, here I was permitted to sample the African fever so frequently as to know it by heart, but without any increase of affection. Now, what motivated him uh, to do this? Well, first of all, his deep, deep trust in God. During this trip, he also wrote back home, he said, we got into so many tight corners, but always found God there. That we began to look out for, nay, even desire tight corners to get into. That we might see how God would extricate us from them. And of course, He was motivated by a love for souls. He said this during the time as well. Some wish to live within the sound of a church chapel bell. I want to run a rescue shop within a yard of hell. And if there's any place on the earth that was a yard of hell, it was in the heart of Africa among the cannibals. They arrived at their desired location on October 16, 1913. They began immediately to work on the language and scope out places to establish future missionary stations once the Lord would bless with conversions and more missionaries. C.T. labored consistently during the time in his 50s and into his 60s, 18 hours a day, and took very little time for recreation or rest He found in his future son-in-law a willing and able participant. He called him a true Timothy because along the way, especially in these early years, 
Alfred uh, was never more than one step behind and was CT's faithful assistant. Surprisingly, while the tribes had killed other white men who had tried to venture into that region, uh, the cannibals left Stud and Buxton in peace. After beginning to communicate with the people, they soon tasted the fruit of their labors. The first baptismal service for 12 converts was held on June 19, 1915, less than two years after they had arrived. Other baptismal services soon followed, and the church was growing significantly within just a few years. Alfred, the son-in-law, or future son-in-law, wrote this epithet after one of the baptisms, and this is so great. He said this, ex-cannibals, drunkards, thieves, murderers, adulterers, and swearers enter the kingdom of God. Former cannibals now protected and promoted the missionaries and their work. In fact, there's one episode that Stud recalled when some younger men in the tribe were helping Alfred and C.T. with some work. One of the older converted men threatened the young men for his lack of effort and said, remember, boy, in my time I have eaten better men than you. I imagine that would be motivation. Back in England, Priscilla, those suffering seriously with health issues, took increasing encouragement by the reports that she received by mail and committed herself in the midst of very great personal weakness to promote the work back home and beyond. She was, for many years, even consigned to the bed. She couldn't get up. And yet, she would write letters, speak with people, and the Lord granted her the strength that one day she decided she just had to get up and do more, and the Lord granted her the strength, and she began to be mobile again and even traveled to some other countries in the developed world to promote the ministry of WEC. C.T. made one more trip back to England, leaving Alfred in Africa, and he went back to visit his wife and recruit new missionaries. He went back because there now were, uh, there was a great work happening in Central Africa. They needed more missionaries to respond to the harvest. But again, when he went back, it was not a rose-colored picture of missionary work. He said this, he said, When in hand-to-hand combat with the world and the devil, neat little biblical confectionery is like shooting lions with a pea shooter. One needs a man who will let himself go and deliver blows right and left as hard as he can hit, trusting in the Holy Spirit. C.T. was never impressed with the kind of strategizing and the, the kind of normalcy and comfort that he saw among many Christians in England. He called it a little kind of biblical confectionery. He said the difficulty is to believe that God can deign to use such scallywags as us But of course, he wants faith and fools rather than talents and culture. And that's coming from a man who had grown up in great culture. In fact, as he tried to recruit missionaries, he called them the etceteras. He was looking for 
men and women who were the leftovers, the left behind by the culture of the day. Those were the people he believed would make the best missionaries. In July 1916, again, C.T. bid farewell to his wife and led a party of eight back to Africa, including this time his daughter Edith, who had given up after four years of pleading that Alfred would return. She gave up and decided that she had to go with her dad into Africa. And she calls herself the reluctant missionary. And as she went, she kept saying, I'm going to die. I'm going to die. Well, when they did return, a wedding was held, and she was impressed by the work that had been established there. C.T. returned with the team in 1917 to find that Alfred, who he had left as a, as a young 20-year-old, 20, a couple years, 24, he returned to find that Alfred, left alone by himself, had made astonishing progress in expanding the outreach of the mission and strengthening the native churches. In fact, Alfred was responsible for compiling a dictionary uh, of the language that would be then used by other missionaries to translate the Bible. And I think what this shows is that the work of God is not tied to any one man. When God desires to do a work, he uses men as means and instruments, but the work will go on once God decides to start, and this is what happened. There was phenomenal growth while C.T. was absent. Nonetheless, C.T. was overjoyed to return. He truly loved the people. And it's truly remarkable, again, to consider the transformation that took place from a, a young man who was born into the highest of culture, who inherited significant wealth, who had national acclaim, and, and, and to see how he was transformed into one who considered that his best friends were the poorest of Africa. As C.T. aged, his intensity became unbearable to those around. And this, the final years of C.T.'s life are filled with discouragement for those who read of it. The final four years of his life were filled with disputes, departures, and even dismissal from the mission organization he had founded. He became, again, very obstinate, harsh, incorrigible. He never believed anyone else could live up to his standards It was always go, go, go. If you can't keep up, get out. His daughter wrote this. Father had made such a sacrifice of himself that it was in his nature to expect much from others and most of us could not keep up with him. If missionaries did not come up to scratch, Father felt we were better rid of them. Alfred played the part of peacemaker, that's Edith's uh, uh, husband at that time already. Alfred played the part of peacemaker. Uh, The same thing happened in cases where African Christians had fallen into sin. Father would demand the necessity of church discipline, while Alfred would advocate patience and love. Each was representing the truth of the gospel, but the differences became severe. Eventually, C.T. would even dismiss 
his dear son in the faith, Timothy, his son-in-law, and his daughter, Edith, from the work. They could not see eye to eye. The doctors, of course, were confounded by C.T.'s longevity. No one believed that C.T. would have lived more than a year or two in the jungle. And yet, by this time, he had lived over 15 years and was still working 18 hours a day, struggling with asthma along the way. But now, at this point, his body was unquestionably failing. Doctors began prescribing morphine to C.T. to help him deal with the pain. But C.T. was so committed to working that he began to abuse the drug in order to keep going. In her own poor health, Priscilla traveled to the Congo to persuade C.T. to return with her to England. C.T. had already been removed from status within that mission organization he had founded. But Priscilla returned to England alone and died shortly thereafter in 1929. C.T. continued on preaching there in Congo until his death on Thursday, July 16, 1931. His funeral was held in a torrential downpour but was attended by thousands of tribesmen. Indeed, the church had been planted there in the heart of Africa, and thousands had heard the gospel, and hundreds had come to saving faith. And yet, we see this man, a man of clay feet, or perhaps we could even say, a man who was, in his own right, a chocolate soldier. Now, what are some concluding thoughts that we can draw from this? we summarize C.T.'s life, and there's certainly a lot to think about, let me give you a few things to contemplate. First of all, C.T.'s life, from the theological standpoint, shows the need for theological training and preparation. He, He had the gospel right, I do believe that, but his understanding of sanctification and the Christian life, though it seems to improve as time goes on, was still very uh, very weak in places. He himself had never had any theological training. Uh, and he even looked down upon it because as he saw the seminaries working, they were o- only just serving themselves. There were few men coming out of the seminaries. And so he almost had a, a, very, a very negative, pessimistic attitude towards theological training, but the results were clear. He, he himself did, did not have a handle, a good handle on some of the important theological issues that are very, very vital in, in ministry. And as I said before, he came at a time where a diff, definite shift takes place. Even though a hundred years earlier, men like William Carey also did not have theological training, there is a difference in the quality of the men. William Carey never went to seminary, but his theology by the time he left for India was robust. He had been trained in the doctrines of grace very well, and certainly William Carey responded to the hyper-Calvinism of his day, but he knew the the basics of the gospel well. C.T. Studd, on the other hand, did not have that kind of upbringing, and, and as part of that student missionary movement, brought all the man-centered 
Arminian kind of thinking to the mission field. Secondly, we can look at his life and see the importance of balance. That you can fall onto either side of the horse. That it isn't just extreme in one area. One must find that that very, very thin line of balance between all the pull of, uh, of the world on the one side, laziness, a lack of commitment, a lack of trust, and here beginning to look on ministry as an idol in itself and beginning to attach your own identity with your ministry rather than simply in your identity in Christ. Number three... The necessity of a receptivity to counsel throughout all of life, even in the years uh, of elderly living. It seemed that as C.T. Studd got older, he became less and less sensitive to the counsel and admonitions of others. In fact, fact, using the language of Luther, uh, I mean, the kind of language that Luther would use. Luther didn't speak English, obviously, but... Using the language, uh, that kind of language, coarse language of, uh, of, of extreme uh, CT uh, would basically describe the opinions of other men. He, he really didn't care, I'll put it that way. He used more colorful language than that. But we need to be receptive to counsel. We need to look to the to the counsel of other godly men. And unfortunately, C.T.'s demise came because he didn't listen to his younger son-in-law, 30 years younger, but who had a lot of wisdom. Number four, on a positive note, the power of sacrifice and courage. Let's not avoid C.T.'s life because of its extremes. Let's not avoid C.T.'s life because of the mistakes that he made along the way. Let's be sure to recognize the great example he was. You see, today we need more Cambridge Sevens, more men and their wives who are willing to set up shop a meter from the gates of hell. You can't do that if you love this world. And finally, number five, whenever we look at any of our heroes, we must remember the reality that all our human heroes are mere men. They are mere men. Never in, they're never to be idolized. They're never to be set forth as the only example we have. We're never to engage in hagiography where they are seen as never doing any wrong. No, that distorts the gospel. There's only one hero in the story, and it's, it's Jesus Christ, the one who gave the ultimate sacrifice for our souls. In summarizing his own father-in-law's life, Alfred Buxton, whom C.T. Had, dis- had, had kicked out of the mission, wrote these words after his death, C.T.'s death. C.T.'s life stands as some rugged Gibraltar, a sign to all succeeding generations that it is worthwhile 
to lose all this world can offer and stake everything on the world to come. His life will be an eternal rebuke to easygoing Christianity. He has demonstrated what it means to follow Christ without counting the cost and without looking back. Well, as we close, I want to return to the poem that C.T. wrote, and I want to read all eight stanzas. I have a few minutes left. We'll close with this. Two little lines I heard one day, traveling along life's busy way, bringing conviction to my heart and from my mind would not depart. Only one life twill soon be passed. Only what's done for Christ will last. Only one life, yes, only one. Soon will its fleeting hours be done. Then in that day, my Lord, to meet and stand before his judgment seat, only one life will soon be passed. Only what's done for Christ will last. Only one life the still small voice gently pleads for a better choice, bidding me selfish aims to leave and to God's holy will to cleave. Only one life will soon be passed. Only what's done for Christ will last. Only one life, a few brief years, each with its burdens, hopes, and fears, each with its clays I must fulfill, living for self or in his will. Only one life will soon be passed. Only what's done for Christ will last. When this bright world would tempt me sore, when Satan would a victory score, when self would seek to have its way, then help me, Lord, with joy to say, only one life will soon be passed. Only what's done for Christ will last. Give me, Father, a purpose deep. In joy or sorrow, thy word to keep. Faithful and true, whate'er the strife, pleasing thee in my daily life, only one life, twill soon be passed, only what's done for Christ will last. Oh, let my love with fervor burn, and from the world now let me turn, living for thee and thee alone, bringing thee pleasure on thy throne, only one life, twill soon be passed. Only what's done for Christ will last. Only one life, yes, only one. Now let me say, thy will be done. And when at last I hear the call, I know I'll say, "Twas worth it all. Only one life, twill soon be passed. Only what's done for Christ will last. Heavenly Father, as we are dwelling upon these words, we ask that you would make this more than just a memorable poem in our lives, but would lead us to a deeper and greater confession and a deeper and greater practice that puts these words into reality, that distinguishes us from the world around us, that we realize we have a stewardship in all that you have given to us, and that nothing in this world can compare with the life to come and what determines 
the reward is what is done for Christ. We're reminded of the Apostle Paul's words. Therefore, my beloved brethren, be steadfast and immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that your labor in the Lord is not in vain. Amen.